Well, welcome, everyone. I got to tell you, it is so good to be here in this room. Um, for those of you that I don't know, I don't have the pleasure of knowing, my name is Reza Zadeh. Um, my parents would not give me that name when I was born. The name they gave me was Ali Reza Sirahiani Zadeh. But then they moved to the United States, and um, we realized I couldn't have that name anymore, so we shortened it. Um, but I am on staff. I've been at staff at Timberline for uh, almost 11 and a half years now. And uh, for the last few years, I have been across the freeway over in Windsor, and it's been great to be there, but I miss being here. I was looking back at my, at my files, and I haven't taught on a Wednesday night in seven years. And um, so I've learned a few things since then, so um, this will be a lot of fun. Um, but before we continue, I'm going to invite our ushers forward, and they're going to pass our offering plates. And if you're a guest, we don't have an expectation at all that you'd give, but, but friends, I want you to know that me and our congregation in Windsor is proof of the faithfulness of Timberline and proof of the faithfulness of God through your giving. So thank you so much um, for that. Ushers, you may go ahead and receive the offering um, as, we, as we continue. For those of you that, that don't know me, like I said, my name is Reza. I've been on staff here for, for a few, for a little over 11 and a half years. Um, I did not grow up as a Christian. Um, I grew up Muslim and uh, grew up in a Muslim culture. And uh, so really I came to know the Lord when I was in college. And there's some things I want to talk about tonight that if I was approached with when I was a Muslim, I would have thought this is absolutely crazy. Why in the world would anyone believe this? But as we dive deep into the truth, my prayer is that the things that we talk about tonight would not only illuminate who Jesus is, but why we celebrate Easter and what it means for us. When I first came to know the Lord when I was in college, um, I had an encounter with some, uh, with some people that, that were part of a ministry called Campus Crusade. Many people are familiar with, with Campus Crusade, and they live next to me. And so I, I became a follower of Jesus through a relationship with them for about eight weeks. Well, after we knew each other for a little over eight weeks, they ended up going back to where they were from. They were here for the summer. I was living in an apartment, apartment complex. And when I was, when I was kind of left there, I thought, well, I, I might as well go to a church. You know, that would be a good thing to do is to, is to find a church to go to. So I went to a church that a lot of my friends had gone to. And I'll never forget, I walked in this church for the very first time. I don't know how many of you remember the first time you ever, any of you guys remember the first time you walked into a church? Any of you, some of you remember. All right. So here I am. Think of this. I'm 19 years old. All I have is a Muslim background. I know nothing about Christianity. I've never, ever, ever walked into a church. I've never been to a funeral. I've never been to a wedding. I'd never even gone into a church. The only concept I had of church is what I saw on TV or the history books. You know, the big long robes and big stand. That's all I knew. And that wasn't anything I ever experienced. That's just what I saw. I walk into this church and this church meets at a high school. And that was awkward for me. We meet in a high school. We go into this auditorium, which was, again, awkward for me. And I walk in, and I showed up. The church was supposed to start at 9 o'clock. So I showed up at 9 o'clock, because that's what time you're, you were supposed to show up. And I hung out outside. People were very nice. About 9.05 or so, I, I kind of walk in the auditorium. And this is what I encounter. I walk in, and I walk in towards the back, right there, walking in, and people are standing. And people are facing forward. And you know what they're doing? They're singing. And that was awkward for me, because I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. Like, why are they singing? What does that mean? Who are those people up front? I had no concept about this. Not only were they singing, they were singing a song about being covered in the blood of a lamb. And I got to be honest, I, and the song is, you know, it's an old hymn. You all know the old hymn, Are You Washed in the Blood? Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? And I remember thinking to myself, nope. And I don't want to be you know, washed in any, any, sort, of, any sort of blood. I've, I've come a long way since then. 
My relationship with Jesus have, has taken me places where now I believe I'm in a place where I, I can honestly say I genuinely love Jesus. I genuinely love studying scripture. And I genuinely love what we're going to be talking about tonight because Jesus has done more for me than I could ever have thought or imagined. There's a number of scriptures we're going to bounce back and forth through. If you have a Bible, you're free to keep up. If you, if you have an app on your phone, I encourage you to go to that because we're going to shuffle through some things. And if you don't want to do any of that, you don't have to because it's going to be up on the screen. But I want to read a passage to you. It's in, the, it's in the book of Hebrews. There's someone who wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not exactly sure who wrote it. But he wrote this about Jesus. This person loved Jesus with all of his heart as well. And this is what he wrote. He said, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You know, the first time I ever read that, you know what I thought to myself? I have no clue what that means. I mean, I have absolutely no idea what that passage is saying. And so here's my hope. My hope is that tonight, we will walk out of this place not only knowing what that passage means, but allowing the truth of this passage to impact the core of who we are, to understand who God is, understand his holiness, and understand that we can be different because of the cross. That we can be different because of Easter. Because if we know the truth of Easter, and if we know the truth of the cross, I know without a shadow that we're able to go deeper into the heart of God than we ever thought possible. That's my goal for tonight. My goal for tonight is that we would know God in a way that we may not have understood him before we walked into this place, but not that we would know him in our heart, but what we would know in our heart through his Holy Spirit would impact, know in our mind would impact what we believe about him in our night, in, in our heart. So tonight I pray that the scales would fall from our eyes and we'd be able never to see the cross again. So as we think about our world, and for some of us, this might be thinking about our life. There's many that we know some of us would be included in this category that live our lives contrary to God. That literally there's people in this world that mock God. Maybe some of us might find ourselves in that place. And really mocking God or living contrary to God or not worrying about who God is or what he says. It's nothing new to society because thousands of years ago, that's how people lived as well. And there was a man named Isaiah that God had sent to really confront the sins of the people. And Isaiah wrote many, many different things, but one of the things that he wrote that we're going to dive into, it's found in Isaiah chapter 5, and this is literally what God was saying through Isaiah to those people that would mock him, that would live lives contrary to God, and didn't care if they lived a sinful lifestyle, but wanted to do what they wanted to do. Yet these were the people that would call evil good and call good evil. Isaiah talks about them right here. In Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with carpet ro as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we might see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we might know it. So basically they're mocking God. They're saying, if we're living sinful, then let God come stop us. We're waiting, we're waiting for God to show up, that we will live life any way we want and we're just waiting to see if God is even real. We're gonna see if he's even gonna confront us. And then Isaiah goes on and says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. We're going to contrast darkness and light a lot tonight, so keep that, keep that in your mind. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
you know, th th this really, this verse shows us that, that, and some people look at this and think to themselves, well, well, you know, there's people out there that live contrary to God and, and, and kind of mock him. And then Isaiah continues to, to, to talk about them and what God's heart is for them. And in verse 25, this is, this is God's response. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and he struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refused in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. You see, some people look at that now, in this day and age, and say, well, that God of the Old Testament was an angry God. That's a totally different God. That's a God that responded to people that lived a wrong lifestyle or lived contrary to God. That God was angry in the Old, in the Old Testament, but that's not the same God as the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is this Jesus that we've come to know, and Jesus is love, and he died on the cross for all of us, and he's brought us all in to relationship. And there's some people that believe that there is no way that God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. The God of an Old Testament is an angry God. The God of the New Testament is a loving God who loves his people. The question for us that we've got to think about, and this is the question I want us to consider, how can the same God be wrathful and loving at the same time? Because God specifically says in Malachi, through the prophet Malachi, he says, I never change. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. God never changes. So how do we reconcile this idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament aren't two different gods, but we have a God who is wrathful and yet a God who is loving at the exact same time. And tonight, this teaching, we're going to dive in and figure out how we have a God who in verse 25 says, his anger has not turned away, but yet at the same exact time, his hand is still stretched out inviting us. For us to understand this, we have to understood, understand what holiness is. On the right side of your, of your bulletin, on the inside, there's a big white, or it, there's a big plain um, piece there. We're going to do some drawings. We're going to write some words. I just want you to follow along and write some of this stuff, write some of this stuff with us. So the first word that we're going to, that we're going to do, the first word that I want to look at is the word holy. The word holy in the Greek is the word kadesh, but it's not, it's not written the way that it sounds. The word kadesh is this. It's Q-A with line, D-S-H, Kadesh. Kadesh is the word, that word means holy. The root of that word means to divide. That it literally means that God is so holy that he is separated from humanity. That God is so holy that he is divided from humanity, that there is a gulf that separates God and humanity, that we have a holy God, a loving God, but a righteous God. Let me take us to the word and just expose some of the scriptures that talk about his holiness. Those will be up on the screens. Isaiah 6, 3, and one of the angels called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Isaiah 57, Isaiah continues, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, that I dwell in high and holy places, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. First Samuel chapter 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And the reality is because God is holy, and this is kind of what, this is where we, we really need to dial in and think about this. 
because God is holy, he must take his wrath out on unholiness. That because he is holy, because he is set apart, because there is a divide, that the root word of holy is that, is that word Kadesh that means to divide, because he is divided from us, that we are a people that need salvation and a people that need to be saved. Listen to this quote by um, Tulian Chavijan. He's Billy Graham's grandson. Listen to these words that he says. He said, every soul then, by reason of its birth, has its nature in Adam until it is born again in Christ. Did you get that? Every one of us, man or woman, our original nature is in Adam, is in sin, unless we are born again in Christ. Moreover, it is unclean all the time that it remains without this regeneration. And because it is unclean, it is actually sinful. And so the picture that I like to draw, and the picture that someone drew for me years ago when I first came to know the Lord, is that God is holy and God is separated. So if God is up here, and you're welcome to draw this, if God is up here and man is here, that there is a great gulf that divides the two of us. That there is nothing that we can do. That there's absolutely nothing that we can do as man to reach God because he is holy and we are not. There is nothing that we can do that would bridge the gulf of holiness because we are unholy creatures. And so we find ourselves sitting here trying to think about the cross, trying to think about Easter and sitting in the middle of a message called substitution and sacrifice. We're going to talk about how this happens because I would guess, because I was there as well, many of us would find ourselves here. Many of us would say, well, I'm a really good person. I, I go on mission trips. I attend church. I even come to Wednesday night. That should be a little bit extra credit, shouldn't it? I come, and I, you know what? When that plate comes by, I literally put $20 in it every single week. So that's, that's really good. And we try to do all these, all these different things. We try to reach God and reach God. But guess what? There is nothing unholiness can do to achieve holiness. And so something had to happen. There had to be something that helped us bridge that gap. And so we're going to spend most of our night in the New Testament letter of 1 John. It's toward the end of your Bible, so if you want to go to 1 John, we're going to dive into 1 John, and we're going to take a look at it and find out what John, the disciple, the beloved disciple, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, what he says specifically about sin and what Jesus has done on our behalf because of sin. John chapter 1, verse 6. This is where John starts, and he says, If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And we'll stop, we're going to go verse by verse with there. Let's talk about what does it mean? If we say, if we say we have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, that we lie and don't practice, practice truth, we've got to think to ourselves, well, what does fellowship mean? What do you think fellowship means? Just shout it out. What is fellowship? Talking to God? Okay, what else? Community? What else? Singing? Friendship, prayer, all of these things are wrapped up into fellowship, but literally the word fellowship, my favorite description of the word fellowship is this, two fellows in a ship, okay? So you got two guys in a ship, row in the same place, literally fellowship means to have in common with, okay? So fellowship means to have in common with. So when you get, when you get some people that are followers of Jesus and they're having fellowship with each other, like fellowship can be going bowling, but going bowling doesn't mean you're having fellowship. 
fellowship is having something in common with. So literally what John is saying is if we say we have fellowship with, if we have life in common with him, he's speaking about Jesus, but yet we walk in darkness, then we're lying and we don't practice truth. Because you cannot, it is impossible to walk in darkness and walk in light at the exact same time. A room cannot be dark and light at the exact same time. You've got to be one or the other. And so literally John is saying, look, if you say you have fellowship with him, if you say you have life in common with the Son, then your life should be reflecting that. And in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, if we continually walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? One another. That we have life in common with, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And so we take a look at this and, and we say, okay, this makes sense. We got to walk in the light as he is in the light. Then we're going to have fellowship with one another. And then the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us from all sin. This was starting to make sense. But the reality is there are some people that would claim that, that, that basically they don't sin any longer because they're a Christian. That there are some people that would say, well, because I'm a Christian, because Jesus has died on the cross for me, and I've accepted that I no longer am a sinner. However, let's figure out what John says about that in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see, here's the reality. As long as we're here on this earth, as long as we're limited to this body, as long as we're here living in a world marred with sin, a broken world, we, we cannot live without sin. I want you to hear what Paul, the God, Paul wrote to the Galatian church. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 about this idea of whether or not we can live, um, li live sinless or not live sinless. Listen to what he says, and this is why we desperately need to understand what Christ has done for us. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what he's saying is it is possible to live without sin. If we yield to the Spirit on a continual basis, every second, every moment of the day. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so Paul is really exposing this idea that as long as we're here in this world, as long as we're trapped with the, in a body of sin, then we are going to sin. That we, there, there is no hope for us without something or somebody interceding and intervening on our behalf. So let's hear what is a loving God's answer to all of this? What's a loving God's answer, a merciful God's answer to the fact that we are going to sin and he knows we're going to sin? The answer is in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. And so, you know, when I, when I think about the gospel, and I don't know if you think about the gospel, I think I can understand the idea that he forgives me of my sin. It's the cleansing part that I don't always understand. And so that's what we're talking about tonight. But there's a condition here. What does it say that we have to do for him to forgive us our sin and cleanse us? What is it? To confess. If we confess our sins. And the reality, confession goes a lot farther than simply acknowledging. It goes farther than me acknowledging, okay, yeah, I have sinned. I think I sinned last week. I'm not sure. Man, that was kind of a borderline sin. It really wasn't that big of a sin. I didn't, like, kill anybody. I just kind of did a little sin. Confession means to agree with. 
Literally, when you confess, you are agreeing with God that sin is sin. You're agreeing with God that your actions are sinful. And so here we are. We are an unholy people that have sinned, but yet God gives us a great avenue of redemption, of forgiveness and cleansing. Paul also does a great job exploring the gospel message with the Romans in chapter 3. Listen to what he writes to the Romans. He talks about this. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, everybody that are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so basically in our current state, we are unholy sinful because of this state, we have no hope. It's not a lot of good news, is it? It's kind of a lot of bad news. It's kind of a lot of, well, what do we do with this? But the great thing, the most wonderful thing about the gospel message is it doesn't end there. That the gospel message does not end with our sin. That the gospel message doesn't, also the gospel doesn't end at the cross. It continues with the resurrection. And so let's talk about that. You know, how, how does this bad news or this hopelessness, how does God turn this into good news? Because the Christmas story that we know, that we recite every year on December 24th at our services, is the angel comes, and what does the angel say to the shepherds? I have good news of great joy for all the people. At our Easter services at Timberline Windsor, we start our Easter service reading that scripture. And it's so funny because for a lot of the people that are there on Easter, the last time we saw them, guess when it was? It was at Christmas. And so we kind of tell them, well, we're continuing, and it's okay if you want to come on Christmas and Easter. That's wonderful. But just so you know, we're here the other 50 weeks of the year too. So we just make sure they know that, and we, we, we talk about that. But here's, here's the good news. Here's the good news. And John writes, it continues in John, 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1. He writes, he follows all of that up when he talks about sin, and he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That we have one, and Dick Foth, if you were here this week, and you know Dick Foth talked very plainly about what it means to be an advocate, that literally Jesus has been summoned to stand by our side. Jesus is our advocate to stand with us and intercede on our behalf before the Father. And then, and this is the core verse for tonight. This is what every, everything I've talked to comes to this, perf, this verse right here. He, Jesus Christ the righteous, is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We're going to take a look at this word. Can you put that verse back up there? We're going to take a look at this word propitiation because it's a, it's a big word. It's a, it's, it's a heavy word. It's a big word with a really heavy meaning. And my hope tonight is that this will be the simplest, complex principle that you're going to grasp. That this, this can be complex, but I want to show you how this can be so simple and how this truth can resonate within us and literally transform our lives. So here is the question we came to earlier. How does a holy and righteous being stand up for an unrighteous being? And it's basically through this doctrine called propitiation. Propitiation has two meanings. There's two meanings to the word propitiation. And we're going to take a look at some Greek words again. Again, if you want to write this down on the right, you're, you're, you're free to do that. The first one is the word halasmos. 
It's a Greek word that literally means acceptable sacrifice. That this word propitiation literally means uh, an acceptable sacrifice. Listen to this passage that John writes later on in chapter 4. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and had sent his son to be the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Literally, he replaced us. Okay? The second word, the second meaning of this word propitiation is the word halasteron. And the word halasteron means a place where sacrifice happened. And so you've got the first word, an acceptable sacrifice, and the second word, halasteron, means a place where that acceptable sacrifice, the place where that sacrifice happens. Listen to what, what Paul continues in Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so this word halasteron can also be translated, and this is where we start diving into what the cross means. The word halasteron is also translated in the Old Testament as this word mercy seat. Okay? We're going to figure out what does the word mercy seat mean and what does this word mercy seat mean for the cross and what does this word mercy seat mean for, for, for Easter and for our lives here, here today. The mercy seat, basically, if, you, if I was to draw, and I'm going to draw here, if I was going to draw the Ark of the Covenant, and if you go back in the Old Testament in Exodus 28, you'll see that God gives, God gives Moses and the Israelites the instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant. It's made of acacia wood. It's, it's, it's gold-plated. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you've got cherubim that are literally with their wings. They're looking down. They're, they're face down. And this, and this kind of top part right here is gold-plated. And that gold plate right there is called the mercy seat. Inside the Ark of the Covenant are three things. What are the three things that are inside the Ark of the Covenant? Anyone remember? What do you got? Staff of Aaron that budded. What else? The, man, the jar of manna. What else? The Ten Commandments. Good job. So you got all the, you got these things that are in the Ark of the Covenant. You've got the cherubim that are looking at the mercy seat. And this mercy seat is really important. We'll get into that in a moment. So literally, this word, halasteron, mercy seat, is going to come into play here in just a moment. So I want us to keep that, keep that in mind. That the Ark of the Covenant is also called the footstool of God. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant. At this point, the Ark of the Covenant was following the Israelites around, and they would build a big tent, the tabernacle. They would build that, and they would tear it down. There were specific instructions on how they would take that, take that through the desert. But at this time, David is saying, I will build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building it. When you think of a footstool, a footstool is literally a place 
where you put your feet. If you're sitting in a chair or if you're sitting on a throne or if you're sitting anywhere and you have your feet up on top of something, you look at some, some old style chairs, you look at thrones that kings of old used to sit on, they would sit on a throne and they would have their feet on a footstool because the chair was so big or the throne was so big, their feet wouldn't reach the ground. Or if you're short like me, um, sometimes when you sit in some couches, your feet don't always hit the ground. So, so you have that footstool there. And you know what the most fascinating thing about a footstool is? is that where your feet are, there you are. Isn't that pretty profound? Where your feet are, there you are. And that might, you might think, well, what does that literally mean? But think about this. If the Ark of the Covenant, is David is saying that I'm going to create a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant, and then he calls the Ark of the Covenant, what does he call it? The footstool of God. You know why he calls it the footstool of God? Because in the Old Testament, as we look through Exodus and as we look through Leviticus and we start exploring some of the reasons or, or, or what happened with the Ark of the Covenant, Scripture tells us that the presence of God actually rested above the Ark of the Covenant in a cloud. And guess where it rested? On the mercy seat. So if you take a look at the tabernacle, and if you walked into the tabernacle, and if you ever talked to Pastor Brent, he loves talking about the tabernacle or the temple, that you walk into the temple and there's a big court, and then there's also a room right here, and that room is called the holiest of holies. It's like the most holy place. And in that place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant rests in there, and the cloud of God rests, that God's presence literally rests on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. And then we'll talk about what happened once a year when, when um, the Day of Atonement would come and why that is significant. But listen to some of the things that people have said about the, the mercy seat. In Psalm 99, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool because he is holy. As we think about this, as we think of this word propitiation, as we think about substitution and sacrifice, we come to our first point. The first point is this. Propitiation is a God act that justifies his character as both loving and holy. Everything that we're going to talk about, you've got to keep this in mind. That propitiation is a God act that justifies his character as both loving and holy. And, 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 this, is, and this is why we have to understand that his, he is wrathful so his holiness might not be tainted. And so we've got to figure out how can we be cleansed from this sin. If we're going to be in relationship with this God, how can we too become holy? All of this that we're talking about has something to do with where we're going and what we're talking about here. But the reality is, it says in Scripture, Hebrews, what we read earlier, says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this is what happens on the Day of Atonement. If you go back in Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 17, and read this, this is what happens. That once a year, once a year, the high priest, he walks into the holiest of holies, and he takes the blood of a bull, and he takes that blood of the bull, and he, and he splatters blood on the mercy seat one time, and he splatters blood seven times in front of the mercy seat, and that is to purify himself so that he might come and bring a holy sacrifice before God to cover the sins of all the people. And so the, the, the high priest walks and he takes the blood of a bull and he throws it on the mercy seat and his sins are covered. 
And then he goes back out, and then he comes back into the curtain. He comes back into the holiest of holies, and he comes in now with the bull of a goat, um, with the blood of a goat. And he takes that blood, and he splatters it one time in the mercy seat, and then seven times in front of the mercy seat, and then he walks out. And then the sins of the people are covered. That God's wrath is not satisfied, but God's wrath is quenched for that year. And so when you think about it, it is blood that comes and gets splattered on the mercy seat. And the blood gets splattered on the mercy seat. And at the footstool of God, where God intersects with humanity, that the whole temple, the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant, the law, all of that was covered by the presence of God. That where God intersected with humanity happened right here. And where blood would have to be brought for the sins to be covered for that year on the Day of Atonement, it'd be splattered on that mercy seat. And so really, that's how year after year after year after year blood would be brought so that the sins of people could be covered. So you think about it, blood is a key agent in life. Blood is a smart agent. Blood transfers all of our DNA. Blood has, there is more information in, in a drop of blood than in many libraries in, our, in the United States. That more than all of this, though, blood cleanses us. We don't often think about a cleansing agent, but it is a, it is a, it, it's blood that cleanses our wounds. And it's the one thing that cleansed the wound, the eternal wound, that we couldn't cleanse on our own. That even though the blood of bulls and goats could never satisfy God's wrath, yet it covered our sin, it would take a holy sacrifice, it would take divine blood and holy blood to satisfy the wrath of God, the wrath of a righteous and a holy God. That Paul comes and he continues to talk about this to the Roman people. And he's talking about salvation. And again, in Romans chapter 3, he says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, which we talked about, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That literally, that when Jesus died on the cross, that if we accept that through faith, that we are going to be able to have our sins removed from us. And we'll explain how this all comes into play in just one moment. But scripture says, and John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. All of this happens. Our sins are, our, our, our sin, God's wrath is satisfied. All of this happens when we simply believe. When we put all of our trust in. And so here's where we find ourselves. The reality that we are sinful, separated from God. That we have a holy and righteous and just God. That, that we have the ability of salvation through Jesus and believing in him. But the question remains, how does that happen? I'm going to use a stool as an illustration here in a moment. How does that happen? Well, if you, think about the, if you think about this idea, when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross and his blood was spilled, and if this was the cross of Jesus, and, and if Jesus hung on the cross, and if when he hung on the cross and we realized it was through the presence of Jesus that God intersected with humanity, just like in the Old Testament, when his blood was spilled at the foot of the cross, guess what? Our sins, were, our sins were not just covered, God's wrath was satisfied. Because he is divine, because he is holy, because he is righteous, it took a righteous sacrifice for our sins 
to be wiped away clean. It took a holy sacrifice for us to not just be forgiven of our sins, but to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. That this word halasteron, mercy seat, where, 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 um, God's, where, where God's wrath was, was cut or, or was quenched for all the people, that this same word mercy seat, the footstool of God, is the same Greek word that is used for the foot of the cross. So what God was doing in the Old Testament through the tabernacle and through the worship of the tabernacle, do you know what he was doing? He was setting up the reality that Jesus was going to come and that when Jesus was going to come, he wasn't just going to quench God's wrath, that he was going to satisfy God's wrath. It's almost as if when the high priest went into the, t- went into the temple year after year and went behind the curtain in the holiest of holies and he continued to sprinkle blood and continued to sprinkle blood year after year after year. It's almost as if when Jesus died on that cross and he gave his life up and then he went into the gates of heaven and he walked into the throne room of God and he took his blood and he threw it on the throne of God and he threw it on the throne of God and seven times in front, just like the high priest said, and the angels cried out, God's wrath is satisfied. That's what the cross means for us. The cross takes us back to what God had set up in the Old Testament for our sins, not just to be covered, but to be wiped away. So we come back to John 3, 16. Well, how does that happen? Well, that word believe. That word believe, if anyone so believe in him, believe doesn't simply mean acknowledging. Believe doesn't mean, well, I think that happened, or yeah, you know, Jesus died. Believe literally means putting all of your weight into. That, that if, when I believe in Jesus, that, that verse, John 3, 16, that says, when I believe in him, when I lean on him, not when I have both feet on the ground, kind of leaning on the ground, on my own strength and on his strength at the same time, when I fully believe in him and put all my weight in him, I rest in him, that when we do that, sins are wiped away. The salvation is able to happen. That the whole idea of propitiation or Jesus being our substitute happens and God's wrath on our life is quenched and satisfied and wiped away. That's why the cross of Christ is so incredible for us as we consider it. I want you to hear the words of an old gospel hymn as you consider these words. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I'll lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. In that old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and to sanctify me. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That he is the halasmos. He is the acceptable sacrifice. And the cross was the halasteron, the place where the sacrifice had taken place 
that he was the acceptable sacrifice and the cross is where that sacrifice took place. And the reality is for this last point, everything that we have talked about boils down to this last point. When you become a Christian, you are not just forgiven, but you are cleansed. That when you become a Christian, you're not just forgiven, you are cleansed. That you're not a better version of the old you, you are actually a brand new person. You are born again because God's wrath has been satisfied because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so this image right here of us trying to do everything that we can do to reach God, basically God came and he bridged the gulf through the cross. Not by anything we have done, but it's by what he has done. And so that's why we look at the cross differently. Because we have the cross, the beautiful, old, rugged cross, we can declare Psalm 99.5, exalt the Lord our God, worship him at his footstool. Holy, holy, holy is he. And so we don't worship the cross. We worship what the cross represents. And the act of the propitiation for our sins made it possible for us to have direct access to God. That that's where the curtain split in half in the temple, in David's tabernacle. And we now have access to the Father. The mercy seat is where our spiritual ancestors came to worship. And the mercy seat covered the law. Jesus himself came and he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Do you see how understanding this allows us to see just a little bit clearer how he came to fulfill the law? And as we close here, and as the ushers are going to come forward and we're going to receive these communion elements, I want us to listen to a few things. I want you to listen to this quote. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It isn't even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as look to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Remember when Moses said that this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep? Jesus said something very similar about his blood. And when he lifted up that cup, he said, this is my body, and this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So here's what we're going to do. Before we pray, before we sing, the ushers are going to pass out the communion elements. The body is represented in the bread, and the blood is represented in the cup. And the team's going to lead us in a song, and as the plates pass by, you feel free to stand and sing this song with us and think about what we've talked about and what the words of this song say. And then I'll come back up together, and we will receive communion alongside one another. the lamb was slain 
Sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Blessing and honor, strength and glory and power be to you, the only wise King. Holy, holy, holy is the Praise to 
concepts and I don't want us to be scared off by any of that because it's basically the point is when you become a Christian you're not just a better version of the old you but you're cleansed you're not just forgiven but God's wrath's been satisfied because of what Christ has done and he did that because he loves you that as we go into Easter and as we continue this series on Wednesday night with Pastor Brent walking through the cross I want us to remember that he wanted to bridge that gap, that great gulf that we couldn't bridge on our own, that he wanted to do it. And you know what? He did. All we are to do is to trust him and believe him and put our whole life into that truth. We don't have to be able to fully understand it or fully grasp it. We just have to believe in him. And so church together, as we come to the cross, hopefully come to the cross in a whole new light. Let's understand that his body was broken for us for a purpose. So that God's wrath would be satisfied. Let's take the bread together. And this loving God also gave us the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. When you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's do this in remembrance of our Lord Jesus. Friends, thanks so much for letting me come out west and the west of I-25 and come share with you and, and hang out. I kind of get a little excited about this stuff, and, uh, and I like it, and I love it. Thanks for being who you are as a church here in Fort Collins. There's some stuff out here for you all to enjoy, some goodies. Enjoy one another. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.